We're uh, continuing our series this morning called Toxic Religion and uh, looking at Matthew chapter 23 and starting at verse 1. Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you. But don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra-wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside. And they wear robes with extra-long tassels. And they love to sit at the head of the banquets in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you have only one teacher and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your spiritual father. And don't anyone let anyone call you teacher, for you have only one teacher, the Messiah. Those great, the greatest among you must be a servant, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves, and you don't let others enter either. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites? You shamelessly cheat widows out of their property, then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, you'll be severely punished. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites? For you cross land and sea to make one convert, and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you are. Blind guides, what sorrow awaits you? For you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but that it is binding to swear by the gold in the temple. Blind fools, which is more important, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And you say that to swear by the altar is not binding, but to swear by the gifts on the altar is binding. How blind. For which is more important, the gift on the altar or the altar that makes the gift sacred? When you swear by the altar, you're swearing by it and by everything on it. And when you swear by the temple, you're swearing by it and by God who lives in it. And when you swear by heaven, you're swearing by the throne of God and by God who sits on the throne. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you carefully tithe even the tiniest income from your herb garden, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice and mercy and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites, for you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, 
but inwardly your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build tombs of the prophets for the prophets your ancestors killed, and you decorate monuments of the godly people your ancestors destroyed. Then you say, if we'd lived in the days of our ancestors, we would have never joined them in killing the prophets. So we've, uh, we've been looking at uh, the idea of toxic religion or, or a way to live out your faith that is so uh, disconnected from the way Jesus teaches it that it actually becomes poison. And uh, maybe you've encountered a version of Christianity that you find yourself looking at that way. So uh, as we've been doing that, last week we looked at the Apostle Paul in Athens, and uh, he's presenting to people who, uh, who don't know Jesus, don't understand or believe in him, but are, some of them are God-fearers. They are people who are Israelites and, and follow the God of the Old Testament. Um, and so Paul uh, looks at them, and uh, he talks to some Epicurean and some Stoic philosophers, and all the people he's talking to, they may have some belief in God, but they don't understand anything about Jesus or who he was, and so he's trying to talk to them about that, but he commends them for their search. He points out the one idol that they have in town. They've got all kinds of idols to different gods, different religions, and he says, you guys are really religious, like you're on a a journey. You're obviously searching for something. He says, so much so that you got this one idol that's to the unknown God, and then he takes that opportunity to say, here's the God you don't know. And so he points out to them that they may be searching in the wrong direction, looking into the wrong things, but this hole in their lives, this hole in their souls that only God can fill, that Jesus is the real answer for that. But he does first commend them for their search. He thinks, it's good that you're looking, and let me help you a little bit and and nudge you in the right direction towards Jesus. But when Jesus encounters the, the, the Pharisees here, he doesn't really go that easy on them. And there's a reason for that. If you remember back at Easter, uh, when we worked through our series uh, uh, looking at, at the passages leading up to Jesus' death and uh, why he got himself killed and all the encounters he had with Pharisees, with religious leaders, and, and the way that he tried to course correct them and point out to them where they'd gotten it all wrong and where they tried to challenge him and, and, and trick him and it didn't work very well. And so... We find here that in that context, that's when Jesus takes on these guys. And he's nowhere near as soft as Paul is on the people in Athens. Those people are pagan people who don't know Jesus, don't uh, really know as much about God. Some of them are really confused. They're searching for God in all the wrong ways. But he says, your search is good. You just haven't come to the conclusion yet. But here, Jesus challenges very religious people, very uh, godly people. They're, they're Pharisees who follow the Old Testament scriptures meticulously, like they're really serious about fulfilling it and making sure they live by it to the point where they're, they're obsessing over every detail and they do what they call hedging the law. Like, like just to make sure we don't break the laws of God, we're gonna back up five steps from that and make sure we don't even come close to it. They're that careful. But in their careful, detail-oriented look at, at uh, how to follow God, they've missed some pretty crucial points. And so when they encounter Jesus, they don't recognize him for who he is. In fact, they find what he's saying about God to be really offensive to them. And so they challenge him, 
And here he challenges them. And so that's the context in which we look at what Jesus is talking about. And he starts off by telling them that, that the people, that, that the Pharisees, the teachers of religious law, he says they're teaching the scriptures and you need to listen to that, you need to obey that, but what they're saying, they're getting it wrong. It says that Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example, for they don't practice what they preach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Their religious system is more important to them than God's kingdom. And so their whole system of, of how to follow God and how to follow the rules, they're really strict, and so they look really religious. They look really godly. When you look at them, people think, well, they're really serious about this. But somehow, they seem to have missed what Jesus is calling them to and, and to the kingdom of God right in front of them. And so their teaching of Scripture is good, but they don't practice what they teach Jesus says. They're, they're hypocrites because they don't do what they're teaching. They don't really live it out as well as they could. They teach the right things sometimes, but they crush people with these unbearable religious demands. So the way that they're getting it wrong, the way that they're being hypocritical, isn't just that they're not doing what they say, but that they've added these unbearable religious burdens. They've got these demands they make of people that look like holiness, like they look like piety, they look like really godliness, but, but he says they're, they're missing the whole point. And they never lift a finger to ease people's burden. Instead, they're making it hard for people to come to God. See, the Pharisees interpreted the scriptures and they were so focused on those details that they just pushed people away by their strictness, and the strictness wasn't something that was inherent to the kingdom. So when Jesus came, he seemed like a slacker to them. And that's what they said to him. You go around eating and drinking, and you just seem to be relaxing and having fun with your disciples, and, and, and you're, you're so far off base, we find what you're doing detestable. And so Jesus challenges them to change the way they look at the kingdom of God, and they can't hear a thing that he's saying because they're so locked into their own beliefs that even Jesus can't change their minds. And so he calls them to repent, to change direction, but they don't seem to be able to hear him, and they aren't able to receive his kingdom because of their strictness and their attachment to their own way of viewing things. And then Jesus says to them that, uh, he says everything they do is for show. On their arms they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside and they wear robes with extra long tassels and they love to sit at the head of the banquets uh, in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplace and to be called rabbi. He says everything they do is for show. Like, like they, they're choosing show over service. They don't want to serve God. They want to be the person of show. And so everything they do is for show. It's all for outward appearances. And he mentions these extra wide prayer boxes and these extra long tassels. See, in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, uh, there's a passage there in Deuteronomy chapter 6 
And verse 4, it starts out, it says, Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And you must commit yourself wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you're at home and when you're on the road, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Tie them to your hands and wear them on your forehead as reminders. Write them on the doorposts of your house <coughs> and on your gates. So he tells them, these laws that I'm giving you, like they're, they're for you to love God with your whole heart, soul, and mind. Like Throw your whole self into it and, and be so concerned with the scripture that you, you over again and again and again, you teach your kids to grow up just being saturated in the scriptures and the stories about who God is. He says, talk about them and, and tell them when you're at home and on, on the road, talk about it. And when you're going to bed and when you're waking up, like the first thing that you think about in the morning and the last thing on your mind at night, be talking about the scriptures and what God's taught you about who he is. And so they were supposed to entrench themselves in it, just soak in scripture all day long, every day. Just be living according to it, knowing it, and, and just immersed in it constantly. So one of the things he says in, in describing that, like just when you're, when you're on the road, when you're at home, he says, tie it on your hands, wear them on your forehead as reminders. Like, like don't forget anything. Anything you can do to remind yourself of the scriptures and what they mean and how to live them out. He goes, hang on to that and like teach it to your kids and constantly rehearse it and write it everywhere. And so the, the Pharisees, they, they took that literally, that write it on your forehead and on your arms and they had little boxes with scrolls in them. And in fact, if you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's the, it's the oldest copy of the Old Testament that, that's anywhere been found. And they found them in 1946 in a community called Qumran. And there was a, a community there and they'd, they'd left artifacts. They had scrolls in jars and, and they were under the perfect conditions so that they didn't evaporate into nothing and turn into, you know, paper dust, but, but they could still find those scrolls and open them. And when they read them, the scriptures were so accurate to what we already have in our Bibles that they're like, isn't it amazing that, you know, uh, if you pass a rumor around town, by the time it's gotten to the fourth person, it's, it's kind of changed, right? We've all played that game telephone as kids, and you p pass something, you sit, whisper something to somebody, and then they whisper it to the next person. And by the time it's four people over, it's completely changed what it was. And yet the scriptures pass down generation through generation through generation, verbally mostly, and then written, and yet they're accurate even when they found them in 1946 and they find the oldest scroll there was. It just proved that we had the right version of the scriptures, that God had made sure it got preserved. And in along with that find of those oldest scrolls of the Old Testament, they found a uh, a, a they found examples of these prayer boxes and, and the tassels. And so one version was an, an inch-long box that they wore on their forehead, and it had four little compartments in it, each one with a tiny scroll that they'd written really tiny. Like they took that part of it really literally, like where, where the Word of God, you know, write it on your forehead. They, they wrote it on little scrolls, and they'd wear a box strapped to their foreheads. And then they'd, they'd make the 
the other kind, the other type that they found there were about a, a third of an inch and they were worn on the, on the left arm and it was one scroll with all four verses, these four verses that they thought were so significant to their, to their lives as believers. And they literally wore a box on their shoulder and a box on their forehead just to show off how godly they were. Can you imagine? Walking around with a box on your forehead going, look at me. Don't I really love God? And of course, all, likewise, they, they did the tassels. And, and there they, they have blue tassels on the four corners of their garments. And, 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 and all of them would do it. Uh, and so, actually, if, if you've ever heard the story in Scripture of, of Jesus with the woman that reached out and touched the hem of his garment... That's what she touched. It was the little prayer tassel that he wore. He wore the four tassels, just like lots of Jewish men, to remind them to pray, to remind them of what God meant to them. And so they'd wear, sometimes wear the boxes, and they'd wear the tassels. And it wasn't a problem that they did that. Jesus did that, and this woman, she touched it, and she got healed. And, and in fact, there's another story. That story is in Mark, uh, or in Matthew chapter 9. And then there's another story in Mark 6, and uh, and, uh, and Matthew 14, where, uh, where Jesus was confronted with a bunch of people who were looking to be healed. And so people kept bringing their sick people to Jesus. And they said, well, Jesus, can you just let them touch the hem of your garment? Let, let just, just let them touch that tassel and, and they'll be healed. That's, that's, they'll be all right. Maybe they heard the story of the woman. Who knows, Right? But they thought that they could touch those and, and be healed. And so it's not a problem that they have it on the bottom of the robes. It's not a problem that they have the boxes. But these guys, Jesus says, they, they make their boxes extra big just to draw attention to it. Like, look at me. You got a prayer box, but I got a prayer box. Like, I, I got a big one, inch wide. I got really long prayer tassels. Look at me. Look at how holy I am. Look at how well I am obeying the scripture. And so the purpose of the tassels were supposed to be able to, to remind them so that they would remember, right? They were told, remember it. Teach your children. Like, like think about it and talk about it when you wake up and when you go to sleep, when you're on the road and when you're home. Like it was about reminding them about God. It was supposed to draw attention to their minds and remind them, oh yeah, I'm supposed to focus on God. But instead, they wore them long so that they could draw other people's attention to them. So it stopped being about diverting their attention to God and started being about making other people look at them and think well of them. And likewise, Jesus says, don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you only have one teacher, and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your spiritual father. Did I just say that on Father's Day? And don't let anyone call you teacher, for you have one teacher, the Messiah. So Jesus is saying for them, they've chosen status over their Savior. Like they want to be drawn attention to. They want to be thought well of. And instead of that, they, uh, they should be focusing on him. And so he says to them, don't let anyone call you rabbi or father or teacher. Why? Why? Because rabbis, the job of a rabbi 
was to teach disciples. So a rabbi was the teacher and, or the master, and he would take pupils, disciples, and the disciples would learn from the master, from the teacher, and, and the rabbi would teach them everything that he knew about God and how to know all these things, and eventually a disciple would graduate from being a disciple, and they would become the rabbi. And then they could take on disciples and they could teach them the ways of the Pharisees and the way to obey God's law. But the problem was that they were always becoming a disciple so that they could become a rabbi. They were learning so that one day they would be the expert that everybody turned to, that they could just uh, take charge and they could be the master. And Jesus says, like, don't let anyone call you that because you're not the rabbi, he's the rabbi. See, the difference with becoming a disciple of Jesus is you never graduate to becoming the rabbi. You never stop being a disciple if you're a disciple of Jesus. It's like a lifelong calling, and you're never supposed to become the expert, the master, the guy in charge, the lady in charge. You're always the learner. There's always something new to learn from Jesus. There's always a challenge that we can receive from Jesus. And so the problem with these Pharisees is that they are always wanting to be puffed up. They're wanting status. They're wanting people to think highly of them. And he says, don't let anyone call you rabbi. You only have one teacher and you are all equal as brothers and sisters. Like, there's no big shots in the kingdom of God. Like, pastors don't matter more than people who are sitting in the pews, who are exhibiting their spiritual gifts. We're all in it together. And just because you call someone a pastor doesn't mean they're any big shot at all. I'm no big deal any more than anybody else. And so Jesus says, don't, don't let this go to your head and don't take this position of authority. My authority doesn't come from the fact that I'm a pastor. You don't listen to me because I'm your pastor. That's why I read the scripture before I start preaching because the authority is in the word of God. And if, I, if I'm not getting that right, then I'm out of line and you should listen to that and not to me. So my whole job is to try to draw attention to him and to help you to become a student of the real master. And newsflash, that's not me. So Jesus says, don't let anyone call you rabbi. Don't let anyone call you father. He says that even though we're to honor our father and mother, and even though we do look up to some people in the faith, and, and the, the Pharisees, they called leaders and scholars father as a title of respect. And it's not bad that they respect them, but he says, listen, ultimately you've got to understand whether it's your earthly father and mother, or whether it's somebody of respect and position, you got to understand your ultimate loyalty belongs to God the Father. And nobody, nobody comes before them. You listen to God, and he's the Father, and he's the one that shapes your life, and he's the one that molds you as your divine parent so that everybody else is second to him, even your own mom and dad. And Jesus goes on to say and really sum up 
what he's been saying about the bad way to be leaders and the bad way to live out your faith is he says, the greatest among you need to be servants, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He says, in the kingdom of God, things are so backwards to the way the rest of the world does it that you're not scratching your way to the top, you're crawling your way to the bottom because if you can serve everybody, then you're doing it right, but if you try to be the big shot, you're totally blowing it. I saw a meme this week in, on Facebook, and, and not all memes you see are really worth anything. Some of them, at best, are worth a chuckle, and other ones you just groan at. This one was actually worth it. It, it, uh, it said, you know, if I found out I was about to die, I would, uh, I'd eat all the junk food, and I'd you know, spend all my money and I'd have some fun and I'd, you know, if I found out it was going to be the last week of my life, I'd just go wild. And then it says, and then it hit me, uh, Jesus knew it was his last week on earth and he washed feet. Jesus, who we claim to follow, he spent his last week on earth knowing this was his last time here instead of indulging himself, instead of it being about him, he got down and he washed the feet of his disciples. And then he told them to do likewise. And it was the same night he offered them the cup and the bread and said, do this in remembrance of me. See, in the kingdom, leaders are servants and those who seek power and status, the people who want to be the big shots and want to have the power, they're the last people we should give it to. Because humility in leaders, to be servant leaders, means that you can be corrected. That you can realize when you're wrong, that you can hear the voice of God, and whether he speaks to you directly or through another person, you can hear when God wants to correct you on something that you've gotten right, or that you've gotten wrong. And here's the newsflash, we all get it wrong sometimes. And so God wants to correct us, but if we are not open to correction, if we're so locked into what we think and what we believe and our opinions on things, we run the risk of being in the same position as the Pharisees who couldn't even be corrected by Jesus. And we can be so sure we're right and so sure we're godly and so sure we're honoring him and he's shaking his head and going, no, it's not like that at all. And so humble leaders can be corrected and they aren't showy about their faith. They're not looking for status or titles or positions of respect. And so Jesus points out to them, if you want to follow somebody, you need somebody who's a servant like that. And then Jesus goes on to pronounce uh, what the scripture in one translation calls woes. Like woe to the, to the one who does this. And so in the translation we read this morning, it's what sorrow awaits. Like how sad if somebody lives this way. And so, he says, so Jesus says, what, the first one is, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law, you Pharisees and hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves and you don't let others enter either. See, they block people from seeing and following Jesus. They don't, they don't just mess it up for themselves, but they lead others astray. They shut the door of heaven in the faces of people who might have sought God and might have found him, but 
their strict guidelines and the way that they do live out their faith actually blocks people from finding their way. And then he says, uh, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross land and sea to make one convert and then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. He says they, they're, they're looking to reach people and, and to teach them to believe in God, but he says the way that you teach them is so off base that you make them just as evil as you are by teaching them your way to follow God and, and you end up in this direction that's not what God wants for you at all and they become twice the child of hell that these guys are. They're teaching them to get it wrong just like they get it wrong. And they get it wrong because they haven't heard the voice of Jesus correcting them and, and, and pulling them back onto the path. And they've done it by being too strict and too uptight and by having their own narrow view of things that they can't see when God wants to correct them. And then the, the third woe is something I'd call wiggly oaths. They say, Jesus says, blind guides, what sorrow awaits you? For you say that it means nothing to swear by the temple, but it's binding to swear by the gold in the temple. So he says, you're, like, like you're, you're, make your vows, but, but if you vow by the wrong thing, then it's not binding. You don't have to keep your promise. So if you vow by the altar, you, you messed up and you don't have to keep your promise, but if you vow by the, by the sacrifice on the altar, that's binding. Or if you vow by the temple, no go. But if you vow by the gold in the temple, and he points out to them how ridiculous that is. He says, isn't it the temple that makes the gold sacred? And isn't it the, the altar that makes the sacrifice? But, but really, he's just pointing to them the, the lack of their logic and the way that they've, they've uh, they, they kind of parsed it out so that some oaths they keep and some they don't have to keep and, and made it really a lot more complicated than it needs to be. And if you look back earlier in Matthew's Gospel, he, uh, he tells us that Jesus taught there in Matthew chapter 5, but I say don't make any vows. Do not say by heaven because heaven is God's throne. Don't say by the earth because the earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Don't even say by my head for you can't turn one hair black or white. Just say a simple yes I will or no I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. Is that a novel concept from Jesus? He goes, instead of you know, trying to figure out the right oath to make, here's a novel idea. When you say something, mean it. Like when you say you will, then do it. And when you say you won't, then don't. And you don't have to swear anything. If you're always honest, then you don't have to swear by anything because people will believe you because people will learn as they've watched you, that you always tell the truth and they'll learn to trust you. But making big flowery promises doesn't do a thing if you don't follow through. And so the Pharisees are looking for ways out from under having to do what they promised to do and their word should just be their word. It's as simple as that. And then... Jesus points out to them how they ignore the big picture. And so he says, woe to them again. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, you Pharisees and hypocrites, for you carefully, you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb garden, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, but do not neglect the more important things. 
Blind guides, you strain out water, your water, so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat and you swallow a camel. See, a, a gnat and a camel were both things they shouldn't eat. They were commanded in the Levitical law. But for these guys, they were so careful about gnats. He's like, you're, you're so focused on the minutest little detail that you're missing the big picture of what I'm trying to teach you here. And for all of your strictness and for all of your big flashy religion, you're missing the point of who I am as God and what I'm trying to do in you. They've lost sight that their purpose isn't to perpetuate more religious activities and burdens, but to bring about true righteousness. And so Jesus says, like, like you're so careful to take a tithe of your, of your herb garden. Like every little strand of herbs, you're cutting off a tenth and making sure you give that to God and thinking you're righteous. And he goes, don't do that. Don't worry as much about that as you do about righteousness and about mercy. Treat people kindly and, and be fair to the people around you. Instead of obsessing about these rules, make sure you get the big picture of how you walk around in the world and how you treat other people. And so then Jesus goes on to say, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. What a powerful picture, right? Can you picture it? You hold up a cup and you go, it's so shiny and clean and looks so beautiful. And everybody around you goes, man, that guy's got a really nice cup. And you tilt it up and there's just junk in your water, like big globs of dirt and nastiness. And you just swig your water anyway. Can you imagine? And he says, that's really what you guys are doing. Like, like you're, you've got it wrong on the inside and, and, and you clean the outside of the cup. You're so worried about what everybody else will think, but your heart's like just rotten, just nasty. And he says, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You're all about what you want and you're all about what you get. And you're so self-indulgent that you only want what you want. You only look after yourself and you think about what people think of you and what you're getting out of it. And, and it's just so selfish and greedy. And you got that going on on the inside, but on the outside, you're like squeaky clean and you look like just a wonderful person because that's the image you're putting out there. Imagine that. Was, there wasn't even Facebook back then. Then likewise, he says, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. He says, it's like a beautiful grave with all the flowers, but inside, you're still dead. Like there's still a corpse in there and that's where you're at, that you're dead on the inside and you put off that, that you're so alive and you're so holy but, but you're dead inside. You don't get it at all. Your hypocrisy and your lawlessness and you're not really following God and you're not really obeying this but you put out this show just to impress people. 
And that's a problem for Jesus. So they give the appearance of avoiding unrighteousness by following their rules and their systems, but they haven't attended to this transformation of the heart that Jesus has called them to. And then lastly, he says to them, what sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law, you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build tombs for the prophets your ancestors killed, and you decorate the monuments of the godly people your ancestors destroyed. Then you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would have never joined them in killing the prophets. And then Jesus goes on to say after that, of course you would. You've just proved that you're the same exact kind of people And what we know after the fact, having read Matthew's gospel and knowing the story of Jesus and knowing the time that this happens in, we happen to know that the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law that are saying, you know, if God had sent us prophets like he sent our ancestors, we would have listened to them. We would have never ignored them. We would have never killed them. I can't believe those guys did that. If God sent us a messenger... We would listen. And they're the same people that have a plot right at that very moment to kill Jesus. If God sent us a messenger, we'd listen to him. We wouldn't kill him like our ancestors did. And Jesus, the Son of God, is trying to tell them where they've gotten off track, and they're like, this guy needs to die. And before... A week has passed. They will have murdered the Son of God. But we wouldn't kill a prophet. We're not that bad. See, the thing, it's for them, it was a lot easier to honor dead prophets than it was to live with the living Jesus right in front of them. And so they honored dead prophets while they murder the son of the living God. Because he couldn't get through to them. He couldn't change their minds and he couldn't transform their hearts because they would not allow it. And so we could look at that story and say, boy, I'm glad I'm not a Pharisee. But the truth is sometimes we get caught up in the same things and sometimes we're off course and any time that we aren't open to Jesus speaking to our hearts and lives and telling us, this is the next way I want you to grow. These are the things I need you to change next. This is how you will get better at following me. And here's the news flash for you. There's not one perfect person I've ever met in any church I've ever pastored. And if you think that you're the first, then you know, come talk to me and change my mind. <laughs> Good luck with that. But if we aren't perfect and we admit it, then then the goal has to be to change in a positive direction, to get better at following Jesus, to get better at obeying him, to get better at loving him with all of our heart and with all of our soul and with all of our mind. And it's okay that we aren't perfect. It's okay that we haven't arrived yet. It's okay that we aren't all the way there. But the thing that distinguishes people from searching from people like the Pharisees is that at least they're open to find out something new that they don't know yet. And they're ready to hear and change their minds. And it, it doesn't mean you need to be so open-minded that you know, er, nothing's ever true, but there's a way 
that we listen for God's voice and we say to God, if there's something in me that's wrong, if there's something you want me to change, if I've got locked into some ideas that I've got messed up in my head because I think it's that way, help me not to be so stubborn that you can't change my mind. God, help me to get it right. And it doesn't matter what other people think of me. That's not supposed to be my concern. That's the problem with the Pharisees, right? They're, they're all about the tassels and the prayer boxes and the titles like rabbi. Let me impress everybody else. I had a quote a few years ago that I came across when I was looking into criticism and I, I used to mentor a group of pastors and, and I was talking to them about criticism and dealing with criticism because because here's the thing, once in a while, somebody in a church criticizes the pastor. Did you know that? And so I was talking to them about criticism, but I came across this really great quote, and, and I can't remember who said it, um, but it was, let praise and criticism wash down the same drain. Like the guy was saying, like you, you need to not listen to criticism and let it discourage you and beat you down, but you also need to not listen to the praise that, you know, and your own hype. Because there's a way, and you can meet people who, who go to one extreme or the other. They let people beat them down, and they care so much what other people think of them that they just become doormats, and, and they get beaten down. And I've met pastors like that that are just so down on themselves because of things people have said to them and they're constantly criticizing themselves or they're constantly worried about what, what people will say if, they, if they're honest. And then I've met other pastors that, you know, get the big head and believe their own hype and, and I don't want to do that. I understand that quote and I go, well, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not as bad as my worst critic thinks and I'm not as good as my biggest fan says, Right? And ultimately, I'm not supposed to be concerned with what people think. I like people. It's nice when they say an encouraging word to me. But at the end of the day, you could all think I'm the greatest pastor ever. And we could fill these pews with people that just say, Peter is such a great pastor. Man, is he a, he's the best pastor we've ever had here. Can you imagine that after Pastor Lloyd, if they said that? Man, wouldn't that? No. The thing is, if that happened, that would not be a measure of success. That shouldn't be a measure of success for me. The main thing that should be for me is, is God happy with me? If everybody else is mad at me, it should be okay with me if God is pleased. And so Jesus says to the Pharisees, you're focused in the wrong direction and you're letting all of these things drag you away and try to make you feel like a big shot before people. You like to be called a rabbi. You like to be seen for the tassels. You need to focus your attention on God as your Father and Jesus as your Savior. And you need to listen to him and let him tell you who you are. And he won't beat you down so that you feel like nothing. And he won't puff you up so that you get a big head. He's the one person that really knows you deep down and will be honest with you. And when he tells you something needs to change, the best thing you can do is change it. And thing is, the minute you come to your senses and you listen to him, he'll help you get it right. Like he'll give you the power to do that. And so Jesus says, look, these guys are, are really super at the religious part. 
and they're teaching scripture, that part's good, but don't follow their example because this is what they're doing. They're making it about them. And it's about him. And for you and I, the challenge for us is to decide that we want to hear the voice of God. We want him to tell us who we are and who we should be. To allow him to speak into our own lives in ways that challenge us and rub off our, our rough edges and make us more like him.